0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Welcome to the Cosmo Happy Hour. It's everything you would talk about with your best friends, from sex to celebrity to entertainment.
2: From the editors of Cosmopolitan.com, this is the Cosmo Happy Hour with Alisa Benson.
0: According to the CDC's most recent available statistics, more than 29,000 people died of opioid painkiller or heroin-related overdoses in 2014, more than any other year on record. Harder to quantify, though, is the devastation those drugs have wrought upon families and children. Most of us saw an image that went viral in September that law enforcement officials in Ohio posted of a grandmother slumped over after a heroin overdose in the front seat of her car with her four-year-old grandson in the back. Authorities later placed that boy with relatives, but other kids don't have that option. Today we are talking to a real mother and a real daughter who are talking and sharing their stories of heroin addiction with us. I'm Elisa Benson, this is Cosmopolitan.com's Happy Hour Podcast, and today we're talking about heroin addiction. Joining me on the panel today is Cosmopolitan.com's features editor, Emma Barker. Hi, Emma. Hi, Elisa. So you just published these stories on Cosmo um, last week, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, And tell me a little bit, we mentioned um, this image that went viral of this, you know, grandmother and her kid. Um, sort of showing the effects of a heroin overdose on a family, and it was really a poignant image that went viral. Was that sort of the impetus for running these two stories on the site?
1: Yeah, and I think a big reason that these kind of there were actually a few different images that went viral. One was also a video of um, a couple who had uh, overdosed and or, you know, were just very high on heroin and we're just kind of like laying weirdly around on a on a front lawn. There were a few situations where either law enforcement or just someone on the internet posted images of a couple with a child who and the child clearly didn't really know what was going on and is just kind of like waiting for someone to come and like take charge of the situation. And I think one of the big reasons that those images went viral recently is because we've been hearing a lot about this. Um, Painkiller and heroin epidemic that's been taking over the country, and really, especially in the Midwest. I think Ohio is the worst of it. Um, My home state. Yeah, go Ohio. Uh, so, um, so this has really been taking over, and we've been hearing these stories of addicts, but you don't always see the like, you know, three-year-old child who's just sitting there being like, "My mom is passed out. I don't know what to do." Um, and I think this these images really pointed that out.
0: And so that's one of the points that you um, make in these stories. And that was a paragraph from the story that I was reading um, just now as part of this intro. But basically, 2014 is the latest year we sort of have the official statistics about how much this epidemic is on the rise. And as a direct relation to that, experts are saying we're seeing a spike in... Ohio specifically, we mentioned in the story, um, a spike in the number of kids in the foster care system. Yeah. Um. So spiked thirteen percent in Ohio. Um. More babies are hospitalized in Ohio for symptoms of opiate dependence than in past years. From fourteen for every ten thousand live births in twenty in two thousand four to one hundred and thirty four per ten thousand.
1: Which is still a small number. I mean, one hundred and thirty four. Babies per ten thousand is not a lot, but when you compare that from being up from fourteen, yeah, it's a it's a quick increase. And obviously, we can't say for sure if the foster care numbers are directly tied to heroin use, Um, but it's you know most experts agree that the correlation is very tight. The correlation is very tight.
0: So, um, did anything? We're going to talk to. to two of the women that we featured in these two stories that are live on Cosmo now. We're going to jump on the phone with them in just a few minutes. Um,
1: the, who is the writer on the piece? So Kristen Masha reported both pieces and she had done a series for us a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, right? When this was kicking off, you know, the 2014 statistics was two years ago. And um, she interviewed... A series of people who had been addicted to heroin in their early 20s, um, just kind of like about how that gets going because it's not like a, it's not the same as other addictions in every way, in that usually it often starts with painkiller use. So maybe they had a surgery or maybe they had some sort of chronic pain and they're prescribed a painkiller. And then they just become dependent on that and eventually they just need heavier. Like heroin is essentially just an extremely powerful painkiller. Um, so it's kind of just like the next step for a lot of these people. And it's, you know, Crystal, who's the the mom we feature in the story, says,, um, you know, no one thinks they're gonna become addicted to heroin. Like she started taking painkillers. Right. and then just one day, like it wasn't enough and someone offered her heroin and she liked it. And it went from there.
0: Yeah. So these two stories that um, Kristen wrote, and I completely forgot, but I remember now the big package that she did several years ago about women being addicted to heroin in their 20s. And then this is kind of the next installment of that with this really specific focus on families and kids and how they're impacted. Um, so you already talked about these viral images and that really being something people are paying attention to right now. Um, being the impetus for you know why to do this story now Was there anything that really surprised you about this when you were editing it? They're very... I mean, I cried reading both stories. They're really emotional. Yeah, I think... You probably don't cry when you edit. Maybe
1: sometimes. (laughs) I don't cry ever. I'm dead inside. Oh, okay. Um, But I... You know, one thing that was surprising about Kelly's story, who Kelly is a 20-year-old young woman who has lost both of her parents, and I think when you hear... um, You know, like, I lost both of my parents to heroin addiction. You assume they both overdosed. And that's not the case. Um, Kelly's father actually passed away first uh, of suicide. And, you know, he wasn't addicted, but his Kelly's mother was. And that's a huge burden on a family to have to deal with that. And he really, you know, loved her and cared about her and saw that how much she was struggling with this. And it was just, like... You know, he was trying to take care of his daughter. He was trying to keep her kind of insulated from it. And it, it was just too much for him.
0: Right. And in, um, Kelly, and in Kelly's mind in the story, she clearly seems to, you know, sort of place the blame on her mom.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. Think- and she has a lot of trouble forgiving her mom, not necessarily f- even for, um, you know, overdosing and leaving Kelly an orphan at that point but more for um, taking her father away. And I think that is a good
0: segue into getting Kelly on the phone. Our first guest recently shared a piece with us on cosmopolitan.com titled, I'm a 20 year old orphan because of my mom's heroin addiction. Here to share even more of her story with us today is Kelly Myers. Welcome Kelly, how are you?
3: I'm good, how are you guys?
0: good good so thank you first of all so much for sharing your story with Cosmo and for coming on the podcast now to talk about it it's such a powerful story right before we jumped on the phone I was telling Emma that I was crying while I was reading it Um, you know you talk pretty candidly about growing up with a mother who was addicted um, and losing her to addiction and then also to losing your father Um, and I guess to start with, you know, tell us a little bit about your parents and sort of your, you know, their personalities. How did they meet? You know, what are your sort of earliest memories of your family?
3: Um, my parents, I don't really know exactly how they met. I do know they had mutual friends and they um, met after my dad had been divorced from his um, first wife. And my mom was kind of the lady that picked him up and helped him out in his hard times. my mom always had a smile and a laugh for everybody she met, no matter who you were. Um my dad was the same kind of guy. He always had a laugh and a smile for anybody and he'd be willing to help you out.
0: Um and what are your some of your favorite memories of them from childhood?
3: Um my favorite memories were probably um we traveled a lot and we took the turnpike. And my mom, this is really simple, but on holidays, like we'd travel on Christmas and my mom would pull up to the toll booth and tell them, Happy Easter, you know? It's mm-hmm. like being funny. And um, with my dad, he taught me a lot. Like we did um, woodworking together and he taught me how to drive. I mean, driving is pretty stressful, but he made the best of it.
0: And so when do, what are your first memories of sort of realizing that you know, your mom was struggling or that she wasn't wrong? You know, how old were you and what are your sort of earliest recollections of that?
3: Um, I'm not exactly positive on when I realized it, but I think the more um, as I progressed through my um, like elementary school years, I kind of realized that something was wrong. Definitely in about fourth grade, I knew that something was wrong when um, that's when everything kind of started to progress where, Family started finding out and everything. And I, I would imagine that
0: you know, there's one of those really strange things about being a kid is how I think kids really do pick up more on these kind of situations. I think than sometimes adults realize. It's easy to think kids are kind of like in the dark about things. How how was it explained to you? You know, I know you mentioned in your story there were periods where your mom, you know, she was wasn't coming to a lot of your school events she would seem to fall asleep erratically you know how were those things explained to you when it became apparent that you were kind of catching on
3: um it really wasn't explained to me to be completely honest my dad like when it had to be explained he would just kind of tell me that she didn't feel good and kind of try and play it off like when she would um fall out of the chairs in the kitchen while she was smoking you know he kind of was like oh your mom doesn't feel good um but, like, she would stay up all night, and I don't know if I ever realized that, like, that that was different, that my dad didn't stay up all night. You right. Know?
0: Well, right, of course. It's like, you know, she's your mom. Like, you kind of have a way of thinking that whatever your parents do is the norm.
3: Yeah. My mom um, actually didn't work while I was in school very much. Like, when I was in first and second grade, she worked at, like, Wawa, but um, she got disability. She got her disability granted, so she stayed home all day. So I think I kind of contributed the sleeping or like that she slept during the day and she stayed up all night. But that was not the case. Right. But
0: you, at least for a period of time, thought that that was just sort of her normal schedule. Yeah. And your mom had worked as a nurse, right?
3: Yes. As a certified nursing assistant. Um, I'm pretty sure she did home care and she worked in a, like a facility for a little while.
0: And um, she, just for people who aren't familiar with this story, your mom ended up injuring herself on the job, and that was when she started taking painkillers. Is that right?
3: Yes. Um, I believe it was either right after I was born or right before I was born. Um, She had back surgery. And from what she told me, the doctor messed up the surgery, and um, something had happened where something was not correct in her back, and she went to pain management, and it just went from there.
0: And so that was when, when she started basically becoming addicted.
3: Yes, from what I understand. Um, I know she did street drugs when she was younger, but I don't know if she was necessarily addicted then.
0: Hmm. Um, you mentioned, I think, one of the most heartbreaking details in your story is talking about this moment where you had a kid, where you had a friend over after school and your mom falls asleep at the table. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Um, Yeah, I actually remember that like crazy well, Um, I still I'm friends with a girl, but we actually have not hung out since it happened Like we're friends on Facebook and we keep up with each other, but I haven't seen her since it happened Um, She came over and I think we were on the same softball team at the time and she had come over after practice or before practice And my mom had made sausage and my dad was at the table with us and my mom was reading the newspaper and it was like open, so you couldn't really see her. Well, she had her fork in the sausage, and she didn't move for a while. And she was sleeping and well, nodding out. And my friend kind of looked at me, and my dad didn't know what to say and i I think
0: that that, you know, i I thought what was so heartbreaking about that was just sort of, You know, in some ways, you cope with this on your own because you have to, and you get as used to dealing with something like this as you can get used to dealing with it. But I think there's almost, you know, I really felt for you in that moment, this feeling of sort of someone from the outside seeing a window into what your life is like and the struggle of that. And I really felt for you in that moment.
1: Mm -hmm. Kelly, did your friends at school, did this ever come up with your friends, like, Did she that did that friend ask questions of you when that happened or did you find yourself ever having to explain it to other people?
3: Um, Definitely when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, I had a, a girl that became one of my best friends and she would come over and work on projects and everything. And as my mom's addiction progressed, it definitely became one of those things that I had to explain. Like she'd spend the night and we'd spend all night in the basement. And she'd be like, well, why can't we go upstairs? And I was kind of hiding it from her. Hmm. But when she found out about it, um, this I don't know if she ever told her parents or not, Um So we became really close, and she understood, I guess, as much as she could, because she knew that my dad would never let us in danger with her, like with my mom meeting her. And um, we actually became neighbors. Like, when we were in 10th or 11th grade, my dad moved out, and we became neighbors. So her parents became very understanding of the whole situation. So it was good that we were friends.
0: Kelly, one of the things that you mentioned in your story is about getting a standing ovation at graduation. Can you tell us about that and what happened?
3: Um, yeah, I can. My the friend I was just um, talking about, she had texted me like a couple nights before graduation, and she asked for our yearbook editor's phone number, the teacher. And I was kind of hesitant to give it to her because I didn't want to, you know, let that teacher out in the open with students because she had confided in me to keep our like cell phone numbers private um so she asked me something kind of like bogus like I want to buy a yearbook or something because she didn't have one and I didn't give it to her well my friend went behind my back and found out this teacher's phone number and had organized a standing ovation I guess it was only supposed to be a few people and it turned into the entire school district including like all the parents with the graduation too that's amazing and, um, I was in line for graduation, and I knew that my grandmas were going to give me my diploma, but they were kind of, like, hidden, so I didn't really know where they were. And um, my favorite teacher had given me a dozen roses, and I went on stage. Like, I was standing to go up, and they said, are you ready? And I said, well, that's kind of a dumb question. Like, yeah. And they were talking <laughs> to everybody else and not me. So when they called my name, my entire class stood up. That's amazing. And they clapped and, like, screamed for me, and it was a good five minutes. Wow.
1: And you carried a photo of both of your parents um, at graduation? Yes, I, did. Um,
3: I carried a picture of me and my parents at my preschool graduation. Oh, wow. Aww. Yeah, it was kind of sweet. Um, and I had my, I have two um, necklaces that match with their ashes in them, and I wore those too.
1: Had your people at your high school, because both of your parents passed away when you were in high school, Did they know, they clearly knew what happened? Like, did you take any leave from school when that happened? Or how did you deal with that?
3: I was out for um, what became an extensive amount of time. Um, When I was, when my dad had died, I was in science class. And I think everybody knew something had happened because I left and a guidance counselor came back in. Because, well, I was, like, really determined to go in and get my books. But obviously at the time I, like, lost my shit for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, I was out of school probably for a combined two months here and there. I went back, like, in the morning, but by the afternoon I was so overwhelmed. Um, My friends knew, too, because my teachers had um, cut my work down, so, like, while they were, like, doing things, I was just there. I wasn't necessarily doing anything because it was just too stressful.
0: Sure. Sure. And so after graduation, you now work as a nursing assistant, like your mom did. Why, what made you decide to pursue that career path?
3: Um, I was actually working part-time at like a clothing store, and um, I was living with my aunt, and she told me that I should probably get a full-time job. And home care for um, being a home health aide is the same thing as a nursing assistant. Mm-hmm. That had an opening, and I did that for a year and i thought that since i did it at home i could do it in a facility and that's what i currently do it just came like second nature to me i guess
0: right right and
3: it's not an easy job
0: right for sure and what do you, you know, the we again are so thankful that you shared your story with Cosmo um, and are talking about it on the podcast. And before um, we got on the phone with you, Emma and I were talking about, you know, um, part of the reason um, that we wanted to run these stories now is because there have been all of these images going viral of really showing the effects that heroin overdosing and addiction can have on children um you know these images of kids in the back seat that I'm sure you've seen um mm-hmm. you know how did seeing those images that kind of blew up on the internet earlier in the year like how did how did you feel when you saw those images
3: um when I saw them I became furious because I knew that somebody that I couldn't help was struggling especially that young child in the back seat like he was probably four, I think, something around there. And I just felt like I couldn't do anything. Like, I was helpless like I was during my um, bout with my parents' addictions. Um, it was so—I It. I had to, like, kind of shut my phone off because I was so upset that I saw this that I couldn't do anything about it.
0: I think that's, you know, you kind of end your essay on Cosmo saying that one of the things that people ask you is what is it like to be, you know, the child of an addict? And you talk about how you just feel completely helpless, like you have no control over the way that this is happening, you know, in your house and around you. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: It was um, being the child of an addict. People think that it's like this. I don't know why people think that, it is the best thing ever because my friends first they thought well you can do whatever you want now like yeah I can do whatever I want because I'm an adult but I also have to pay my bills because there's nobody here to support me and nobody's basement to live in for the rest of my life Right. Um, it definitely is like a struggle because you're sitting here thinking that your parents are supposed to be the best role models they can be for you and you're struggling to understand what real parents I mean, not real parents. I mean, everybody can be a parent, but it takes a lot to be an understanding one and be um, a part of your child's life in the way that you need to be. So it's definitely a struggle because you're wondering if your mom is really acting the way that everybody else's mom is acting or something like that. I mean, I don't really know where I'm going with it.
0: (laughs) No, have you um, reached out to other you know online have you talked to other kids who have been in a similar situation
3: um, since this article was released I've probably got hundreds of Facebook messages from people that found me on social media I mean I didn't know wow. people did that after you put your name on a big website right so um, I've heard so many people that have said I'm going through the same thing and it, it's actually comforting because I'm pretty sure they didn't think I was going to answer them
0: right Yeah. I did Right, 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 and I'm sure there were points in your life when you were saying, you know, you were feeling very helpless and out of control, that being, having the opportunity to talk to someone who sort of understood what those feelings were like would have been helpful.
3: Yeah, um, I definitely did reach out to like Tumblr and social media when I was younger to see if I could find somebody, and I actually found one of my best friends. Um, He is still my best friend after six years, and he has been there with me through everything.
1: That's and you met it on Tumblr?
3: Yeah.
1: Wow. That's
3: We've amazing. never met in person yet because we are he's in Georgia and I'm in Pennsylvania. So we're working on that. Someday, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Kelly, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, and for those of you who haven't read it yet, absolutely check it out on cosmopolitan.com. Um, I'm a 20-year-old orphan because of my mom's heroin addiction, a really powerful and moving story. And Kelly, just thank you again for opening up and sharing your experience with us. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Our next guest also shared her story with us on Cosmopolitan.com. She's a mother of two and a recovering heroin addict. Now she runs the website EraseTheShame.com for people pursuing recovery. Welcome, Crystal. Hi, Crystal. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. And where are you calling from today? I am calling from Shelby, Ohio. Uh, I grew up in Ohio. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Northwest Ohio in Finley. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not real far from here. Yeah, (laughs) neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Crystal, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your inspirational story with us. Um, What has been the reaction since the piece went up last week? Have you heard from people? yes.
2: Yes, I've had a huge outpouring of just positive responses, people messaging me on Facebook that I don't even know whether they're recovering addicts or family of addicts or just, you know, whoever, um, you know, they're just messaging me and telling me how inspiring it was or asking, you know, how they can get somebody help or asking for help themselves, so it was it was really great to see that
0: that's amazing and so for those of you or for those people listening who haven't read the piece yet can you sort of walk us through you know when did you start using heroin and how long now have you been sober
2: I started using heroin in my early 20s and so I'm 36 now Um, so it was you know 10 years maybe a little more or less Um, definitely opiates and heroin for at least 10 years Um, so, yeah, it was a struggle. I have almost 10 months clean as of right now. Congratulations. So. Thank you. You talked a lot
0: about in the story, you know, moments in your life where your heroin addiction was affecting your relationship with your children. And yet, you know, there was still a long span of time before you were able to get help. Walk us through those moments that stand out in your mind as really pushing you to to lead to your sobriety
2: um yeah I mean I I think an active addiction for me um you know the first time i I felt like I utterly um, failed my children because of my addiction um that really started my my denial and pushing it off and well I thought that bad
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and you know it got it, after years it got kind of hard to deny the fact that I had a problem and I was not only ruining my life, but probably on the road to ruining these two little people that I, you know, grew inside my body. Um, so my son's 18 and my daughter's 11. So, you know, they both think quite a lot. Um, the first thing that really popped into my mind was um, when my son was bitten by a dog and I was almost an hour away, so I was, you know, scoring dope at the time and, he got bit by a dog at a park and, um, you know, another parent, another mother took him to the emergency room. And so it was like 45 minutes before I even got there to be with him. Um, you know, I took my daughter on. soap runs with me and I passed out in her lap, like nodded out, put my head in her lap while painting her fingernails one day. Um,
0: and what I would your, know. you know, what what did your daughter say to you? You know, when you're painting her fingernails and passing out in her lap. You know, how does she understand at that point what was going on?
2: No, she didn't. Not at that point, because that was probably three or four years ago. So mm-hmm. she was young. Um, but yeah, she was still young. But at the same time, she was kind of used to it because what she said to me was, hey, "Mom, you know, you passed out in my lap again. You, you fell asleep again." And I was just like wow, you know, at the moment, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. But then I, you know, I blew it off for a long time and continued to hurt them.
1: Was there ever a moment when you kind of, you know, I know you, you mentioned in the story that you didn't really think it was that big of a deal at the time or that, you know, you had little moments of clarity, but was that kind of suppressing like a, Like, did you kind of know that you had to say something to them, or were you really, like,
2: um, kind of in denial about it? I was in denial, um, and I even, you know, was kind of, it's arrogant. I mean, when I look at it now, it's like, how could you, you know, say this or think this? But, you know, Mm. I rationalized it, like, well you know, they they still live with me, and they they have food and running water, and I still get them to school, you know, but, I mean, their needs were still not being met.
1: Mm -hmm. And when did you kind of realize, like, oh, I need to explain this to my daughter, like, when is that kind of the first time that you, like, told her what was going on?
2: I think it was really this past time, over, you know, about the past, Year and a half because I had when I got into recovery, I, I got ten months and then I had a, a relapse for a few days, and then I have ten months again, so it's been that long since I got into recovery and have really you know taken it seriously and, and tried hard this time, so you know I, I felt like I needed to tell her and I, and I did, and it was kind of weird, like she kind of knew, but she didn't know at the same time, like I don't think she knew that. You know, shooting up meant that I was putting a needle in my arm and putting drugs into my body. Mm -hmm. But I told her, you know, I told her everything and I told her I was, you know, I'm getting health and I'm going to try to get better and and be a better parent. And what was
1: her response
2: to that? Um, She's so easygoing. She just (laughs) was like, okay, well, that's good. That sounds good. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one of the things that you mentioned in the story that I thought was really interesting is that you say, you know, even though there there are these periods and of course, you know, the denial aspect of all of this is understandable. But even though there were periods where you were in denial about maybe how bad things were or um, how much this was affecting your children, you said that they were never not on your mind. You were thinking about them constantly. Can you sort of talk about what? you know it was like in those moments where you're you know high but you're still sort of thinking about your kids and thinking about you know wanting to be a parent for them
2: yeah it's really depressing and I think it um that kind of starts a vicious cycle and probably a lot of addicts can relate that you know it you're not taking care of them and you have total services in your life and your family's, you know mad at you and wanting you to you know stop using and you can't so then you feel bad and you're neglecting your kids and so you use more because you don't want to think about it (laughs) but then I for me every time I got high you know that was that was my end game so you know the hustling and stuff and getting the drugs and as soon as I got high then that was the time when I then would think about how horrible I was so then it would make me want to get high more it's a it's a terrible cycle
0: (laughs) right right you recently um, you know in your 10 months sober you recently had an opportunity to attend a White House summit on heroin and meet President Obama. <laughs> Tell us what that was like.
2: <laughs> oh man, that was so surreal. I mean like from the uh, from the very beginning, um, somebody from the White House you know called and, and was asking me all these questions about you know my recovery and and everything, and I was like, well, of course, I'm gonna talk to someone from the White House, but I didn't right. know why. Um, so then it, then he called back the next day and asked if I would like to be on this panel and, you know, meet the president and, and talk to him about my addiction and recovery. And I said, yes, of course. Um, but then it was a few days, like three or four days until it was actually gonna happen. And um, I had to keep it secret. I wasn't, I was allowed to tell, like, you know, my immediate family. And that was it because it wasn't like a scheduled place that he was going to be, so nobody knew he was going to be there for security reasons. So it was just surreal. And then meeting him—I um, mean, of course, I was nervous. And we all got to meet him backstage and get a picture with him before the the panel um, meeting. But um, he was so um, nice and so real, and you know, kind of joked around and like put us at ease because it was. Two other people on the panel besides myself and we were all so nervous and I'm sure he knew that but um, it was just an amazing experience obviously I'll, I'll never forget it.
0: That is amazing and it does seem like and you know I know you've done some other speaking and it seems like that has been an important part of this you know journey for you is being able to take your experience and share it with other people and for- focus on the positive and moving forward
2: yeah absolutely it's such a huge part of my recovery and it's nothing that I planned but as soon as I you know shared my story for the first time which was um, during my the TED talk that I did um, I kind of realized like whoa I, I can really help people and people want to hear my story and, and they want to know about addiction and recovery and stuff so it is a huge part of my recovery now today
0: and you know i think for any parent the idea of having a conversation with your kids about drugs and making smart choices is challenging you know how have you approached having those conversations you know knowing that your kids understand your own struggles
2: i am a hundred percent honest with them now um you know i lied and and hid my addiction from them as best I could, but, you know, them and my whole family really was unwillingly taken hostage by me, you know, so I kind of have thought about it, you know, they, they didn't want to go on my addiction with me, so, you know, I'm going to open up my recovery to them so, you know, they do, they can experience that positive part of it. Um, and I, I'm, you know, maybe it's just me because I'm, from that world, and it's it's normal to me, but um, I think we do, like kids in our country, a disservice when we're afraid to, you know, do the real talk. I mean, they have to know what shooting up is, and needles, and heroin, and overdosing, and I think some parents are apprehensive to say those words to their kids, but we really have to educate them.
1: Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned in your interview that you... Um, didn't think the the law enforcement putting out the the photos of you know the couple nodding off while their child is in the back seat you didn't think that that was a you know good tactic to kind of like a scare tactic by the police to um, draw attention to this issue because it shames um, yeah it shames the addicts can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that and that ties into your website erase the shame as well
2: yeah totally Um, yeah, I was actually appalled, um, and I mean, maybe, maybe they just don't understand. I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt that they didn't understand how shaming that was, um, and I, and I do remember, I think that, you know, that specific article said, you know, this is the other side of addiction, and I remember thinking, no, it's not, recovery is, like, the other side of addiction, we need to... (laughs) Start showing this positive, um, recovery, I mean, that, that needs to be on the front pages is, you know, recovery stories and people that are helping other people. Um, and you know, the shame and the stigma, what I realized was, um, you know, I never, I mean, I felt the shame from society, but never really from my family, um, or from employers. I guess I never let it affect me, maybe. Um, but I know a lot of people do, and they don't. Uh, they don't get the help that they need. They're afraid that their family's going to disown them, or they're going to lose their job, or um, you know, who knows?
0: Right. I um, think that's exactly what you said earlier. It sort of yeah. just feeds into that cycle that makes people less likely to get yeah. help. Yeah. Um, Crystal, I think you are so brave for sharing your story. Um, You know, not only because these things are so difficult to talk about, but because we live in a moment where people want to blame and shame parents for everything and anything. Um, I think, you know, being a mom is so difficult on its own. And and let alone when you have this, you know, important and powerful um, story to tell, but one that you know will be met with judgment. So I think it's amazing that you are you know, being brave enough to tell your story. And um, is there anything that you would want to say out there to other moms or to people right now who are struggling?
2: Yeah, just reach out, um, get help. There's people, there's so many communities. I'm, um, you know, I have two pages on Facebook aside from mine. This is under my name, but Mine's called Erase the Shame and Erase the Shame and Stigma of Addiction. I do videos for those and then I'm also assistant publisher for a large community called Kill the Heroin Epidemic Nationwide and I do videos there. Um, They're they're great communities with people that are, you know, working every day to get people into treatment, um, to give them hope and inspire people and show them that recovery is possible. And I know that the hardest thing to do is to reach out. But I think, you know, it's kind of changed. It used to be you had to reach out, you know, to a counselor or someone. But now there's, you know, these people like myself creating these pages. And, and they work so hard just to get people into treatment every day or just even just to listen to them. I talk to people every day. And just I think talking with them and, and relating with them just helps them even.
1: Yeah, you shared a powerful story about a woman who reached out to you who um, was a mom and, you know, maybe some people have the misconception that if you're an addict and a parent, maybe you don't, like, really care about your kids that much, but she was saying, you know, she didn't want to go check herself into a treatment program because she didn't want to be away from her kids, and um, what was the advice that you shared with her?
2: Yeah, and that's, and, and you know, and I can, I can totally relate, because that was my problem, too, um, you know, it's either be away from your kids for, you know, that amount of time while you're getting clean and recovering and learning these tools and these coping skills, um, you know, or they can be taken away forever or worse, you know, we can, anyone can overdose, especially with the Car fentanyl that is going around now. It's like, it's a gamble every time someone uses heroin. Um, and I'm lucky my kids were never taken away. But, you know, I kind of waived that option to her. Like, you know, go away for a little bit and get this treatment. Or, you know, you don't know what could happen in the future if you don't.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for talking about it on the podcast. We appreciate it so much. And I just want to remind everyone to check out your website, EraseTheShame.com. But thank you so much, Crystal. Talk to you soon. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So this was an emotional episode of the Cosmopolitan.com Happy Hour podcast. Not so happy today. But, um, you know, I just think both Kelly and Crystal, I think it's just amazing that they're sharing their stories. And you just can't imagine what it would be like to be going through something like that and feeling so alone. And so I feel like them talking about their experiences and focusing on how they've moved past. Like, I just hope people are reading this and listening this.
1: Yeah. you know, And Crystal's such an inspiration in, like... It's not it's never too late, you know, Right. she's working really hard on repairing her relationships with her two children. And her daughter is still young enough that she is really, um, you know, still being able to attend school events for her daughter and really be there for her.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just her sort of
0: you know shamelessness in talking about it and saying she wants to be so honest with her kids and she wants to be so honest in the story that she's sharing you know Mm -hmm. publicly I think is as I like said like nine times on the phone really brave yeah and Kelly being a
1: support system for other kids you know there's so much especially now that kids have the internet so young Like they have the ability to reach out to people on their own and now there's people like that that have had these experiences that they can talk to and it's so sweet that she met her best friend online through that experience. Right.
0: I also think it's really, we didn't dwell too much on it, but you know, she's working in the same, you know, she's working as a nursing assistant Mm -hmm. and you know her sort of saying like I was really used to taking care of people, and mm-hmm. now being able to do that for other people in need I think is amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm crying all over again. Yep. <laughs> Crystal, Kelly, thank <laughs> you both. Um, I do also want to say, if you or someone you know needs help for addiction, contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. I'm gonna read out the phone number. Of course, you can find them online. But here it is, it's 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Um, I think Crystal and Kelly are both amazing reminders that there are resources out there. There are people out there. You're not alone. People will help you. Um, Emma, thank you.
1: Yeah. Always love having you. I feel you. like I did nothing here. No. You. <laughs>
0: um, and as always, Emma is bringing amazing features to Cosmopolitan.com every day, including both of these. Definitely check them out if you haven't read the stories yet. Um, And as always, if there's something you want us to discuss on a future episode of the Cosmopolitan.com Happy Hour podcast, hit me up. Let me know. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Elisa Benson, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-N-S-O-N. Emma, where's the best place for people to find you?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter at Emma June, E-M-M-A June as in the month. As in the month.
0: Um, Well, thank you so much, Emma. And thank you guys all for listening. Um, I always love hearing from you and hearing your feedback. I will see you guys next week. Bye.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news.